Turn, if you're turning in your Bibles this morning, if you would, again to the book of Ezra. Book of Ezra. A few years ago, before Ancestry.com had been invented, I did a little bit of research on my family history. I went to the library and got some interlibrary loans from, from other places, started looking through some books, made some phone calls, and got a lot of lists of names. A lot of them were ship's manifests. There were some church membership roles at some German Baptist Brethren churches in Pennsylvania. I got some registers of uh, some cemeteries, some in Indiana, some in Pennsylvania, and some in Switzerland even, so on and so forth. Many of those name lists probably had not been consulted in years, and it's very likely that no one had ever read them through from beginning to end. So why is it that someone took the time to typeset all of those names and publish them in books? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Some lists were there to preserve memorials. Other lists were there to, for, for legal records. Some lists were actually made for people like me who were actually trying to figure out where they came from and such. But none of those lists, all those lists that I looked at, not, not a single one was designed to be read name after name after name, word for word, but they still existed for some purpose. Now, if any of you happen to read ahead in the book of Ezra, you notice that there is a list that pretty much covers almost the entirety of Ezra chapter 2. And I want to let you know right up front that I'm not going to read the list. Okay? I, I, I understand that there is a, a, like an ongoing joke here about someone who actually did read this list, and I, I hand it to them. You know, I, I, I don't have the skills to do that. It either puts your teeth on hedge or puts you to sleep or some combination of the two, ironic as that might seem. Uh, and I don't really want to do either one because I don't know that the point of that list is to be read name for wit name. Okay? And there's, there's value in doing that, but I don't think it's necessary for us in order to figure out what they're there for to have to read them one by one. In fact, as I, read, as I was preparing for this sermon, I actually went to some pastor friends of mine to ask some advice. How do you, I want to preach through the book of Ezra. How do I get through the genealogy? Do I skip it? I actually talked to several pastors, four in fact, before I even got to one who had ever preached through a genealogy. Okay? Uh, because what do we tend to do? We tend to skip these over. But we all recognize, we talked about this last, last week, right? that they're there for a reason. It's part of the whole counsel of God. It is, in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? So it's there for a reason. So I don't feel comfortable skipping it. At the same time, I'm not sure that it's there to be read word for word. So what should we do with this? Well, actually, we find some warnings also in Paul, in 1 Timothy 1 and in Titus 3, if you want to look them up sometime, about paying too much attention to genealogies, right? 
And so I, so, I, so I come in here with the trepidation that these texts can be abused. That doesn't mean we need to ignore them, okay? So what do we do with them? Well, uh, there are some who have over the years, and I think probably the reason for the warning that Paul gives, the rabbis used to look at these lists and say, boy, there's not a whole lot of devotional value here as I read through this. And so what they would do is invent stories. You know, they, perhaps some little tidbit in their name, maybe their name means something in Hebrew. They would, they would, they would weave a story together. And then what would end up happening is the various rabbis in various places would come up with different stories. And so then they would fall into endless debates about the genealogies whose story was the right one. Okay. We actually have that happening today, right? Do you remember, do you remember a few years ago there was a craze? It hit all the, uh, all the uh, bookstores. The Prayer of Jabez. Remember that? The Prayer of Jabez. What some entrepreneur did was took a little line out of a genealogy and figured out a way effectively to get rich <laughs> he sold all kinds of t-shirts and mugs and pens and everything had the prayer of jabez on it and somebody made a pretty penny by taking a name out of a genealogy and a clipped bit of information there and wove it into what effectively was a health and wealth prayer. Okay? What was he doing? I think he was doing, whoever it was, or maybe it was a she, I don't know. Whoever it was that did this was effectively doing exactly what Paul says, don't do with genealogies. Okay? Don't make up stories. Don't use this in order to, to weave some sort of a devotional a uh, little twist out of these. That's not what you're supposed to do with the genealogy. So, so what should we do with them? Well, I think what we, are, what we have here is a list that is not unlike many of the lists I consulted when I was looking at my family history. I figured out what the list was there for, and I got that. And then I moved on. I was only looking for one name, usually, maybe two on that list, nothing more. I got the point of the list for me and moved on. And I think the point of this list, and this is, this is I think, the critical issue here, why is it that God put the list here? Okay, that's the question we want to ask, answer, and apply this morning. Why was it there? And I think it was this, to show that the promises of God are unfailing. It's going to have two points. One that's, that's drawn from the first couple of verses, and then another that's drawn from, the, from, the, from some latter verses that I think pull this idea out. The promises of God are unfailing, and that's why the list is here. Okay, Let's see if we can't, can't, uh, can't uh, figure that out here. For those of you who couldn't make it last week, and even those of you who did, which is most of you, let me back up and do a little bit of review of what we're trying to do. We started last week a series working through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Remember, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together are called the Book of the Returns in the Hebrew canon. They document the history of Israel during the period of their return from exile in Babylon. So we entitled the series Rebuilding or Reengaging after a setback 
Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, being a single book here, were, were separated at the writing of the Latin Vulgate. Remember, a little bit of intrigue here. Uh, when, when, the, uh, when the Latin Vulgate was written, this is when the, uh, the, the, uh, the books of the Apocrypha sort of made their first in introductory inclusion in some canons. Okay, so the, the Roman Catholic books of the Apocrypha. Um, they aren't formally brought in until the, until, uh, until the, the time of Luther. Uh, nonetheless, these, these books, these apocryphal books, are starting to proliferate, and a bunch of them are, are fit into this time in history. And so this book was separated, and so you end up with bits and pieces of, of apocryphal books sort of filling in the gaps here. We do have one book, we said last time, does, that does fall in the middle, right between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra, is the book of Esther. Uh, and so that would be another, another reason, perhaps, why we might have separated the, that book even further in order to insert some of these other historical uh, uh, books. And that's what ends up happening. The first of the returns from exile, remember, they're in Babylon. Uh, they are uh, under the uh, Babylonian rulers, separated from their homeland, and they are allowed to return. Uh, and there's actually three separate returns. The first one uh, that we're looking at over the first six chapters is the largest of these migrations. Uh, we're going to see here the exact number that are going to return. Uh, that uh, ends up being you know, 42,360. So that's how many people come back under Zerubbabel. This is the largest migration. It's anticipated by this decree that was issued by the Persian king Cyrus in the first few verses of chapter 1 last week. But as we noted last week, we'd be remiss to give credit only to Cyrus, the Persian king, because we noted here that God is the one who moved in his heart, and furthermore, God moved in the hearts of the leaders of Israel in order to make this migration, this return from exile, to the land, the promised land. So it happened in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, God moved in the heart of the king of Persia to issue the decree of the return. So this first chapter is not so much just a historical story about a disenfranchised people group that's going home, but rather, behind the scenes, this is the story of the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. But it's more than this. It's God being faithful to his covenant and to the promises that are attached to them directed to his elect nation. And that's what we're going to look at here in chapter 2, the faithfulness of God to his promises. Notice how God is not only sovereign in the affairs of the nations, but also he is faithful to the peculiar promises that he makes to his chosen people. God is great, he's transcendent over the affairs of the nations, but he is also good and concerned with the affairs of his people. And it's here, though, I, I know we are not Israel per se, but I think this is where we find our, 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 our niche here. This is where we find the application for ourselves. God is faithful to the promises he makes in general, some of which are directed towards us who live here in the New Testament church age. But I'd like to look specifically at two promises this morning uh, that, uh, that God makes that seem to be at the center of this genealogy. The first 
is found here in one name, this name Zerubbabel, uh, that I promised last week we'd talk a little bit more uh, this morning. Uh, remember last week we said that the, 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 the leader of this migration was going to be a fellow by the name of Sheshbazar, but then starting here in chapter 2, the name Zerubbabel seems to take his place and Sheshbazar is never mentioned again. So Zerubbabel, we find, is the, the de facto leader of this return from exile. There's, there's some questions along the way as to you know, why the name Sheshbazar is given up and Zerubbabel is put in his place. Some suggest that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same person. It's possible. Uh, we, we do know that some people would have two names, you know, Daniel, Belshazzar, and the, and the three Hebrew children have Hebrew and uh, Babylonian names. The problem with this is the fact that uh, both Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are Persian names. It's not, not, neither of these is a Hebrew name. Could be that, but it doesn't seem likely. Some suggest that Sheshbazar was, you know, started the migration, but he died, and Zerubbabel takes his place. This is possible as well. Others suggest that perhaps Sheshbazar was the figurehead, like the Queen of England is, and Zerubbabel being like the prime minister is the one who actually was doing all the dirty work. It's unclear exactly why this change is made. Uh, but it, it, it just goes without saying that Zerubbabel is the one who is leading the return. And he's a very important figure in the later Old Testament. With the possible exception of Ezra, is probably the most important, humanly speaking, the most important Jewish figure that we find in the, in the, in the period of the return. He's mentioned in five Old Testament books. But what is really interesting theory is, here is his link between David and Messiah. A little bit of history here, but I think it should be useful here. This is, this is one you have to sort of follow the argument for, for a few minutes, and you sort of have to, to hang in there, because we are going somewhere, but it might not seem to us first. We're, 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 we're preaching a, 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 a genealogy this morning, and I'm actually going to take you to two other passages that are two other genealogies. So, so bear with me. I'm, I'm actually making things worse for myself, but there's a reason for it. Let's see if we can't figure this out. The reason that Zerubbabel is such an important figure for us is because God had cut off David's line with the what is sometimes known as the last of the Hebrew kings, either called Jehoiakim, depending on what translation you have, either Jehoiakim or Jeconiah, or some actually call him Coniah. So there's a number of names for him, but it's the same person. Jeconiah is the name that we'll try and use here as we work through the sermon here. But there had been, in Jeremiah 22, an announcement by God that no king would rule over Judah again. No one would sit over the house of Jerusalem anymore. Let me just read the verses here in Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even if Kaniah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would pull him off. Okay, and then he goes into some detail here and wraps it up in verse 30 by saying this, this is what the Lord says. Write this man down childless. 
A man will not prosper all his days. No man of his descendants will prosper or sit on the throne of David or rule again in Judah. Okay? Now, this may not seem all that important to you, who, who of us has even, really even given much thought to the man Jeconiah, perhaps the first time you've actually even thought about the name. But God had made a promise in multiple places that there was going to be a great king of all kings, the Messiah, who was going to come through the line of David. And when Jeremiah announces here in Jeremiah chapter 22 that this royal line was cut off and no son of Jehoiakim or Jeconiah would ever again sit on the throne of David or rule in Jerusalem, it was devastating. The Jewish people would have heard this and probably would have been thinking, the Messiah promise is off. God's canceled the covenant. There's not going to be a king of kings. There's not going to be a Messiah. It's over. There's no hope. And, they, and, and they heard Jeremiah say this, and they would have been devastated. But then, a couple of generations later, we find another statement made in the book of Haggai. You can turn over there if you'd like as well. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, and listen to this statement. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, son of Jehoiakim, son of Jeconiah. Okay. I thought he was childless. I thought there wasn't going to be another ruler. Okay. But here, listen to what it says. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heaven and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders will go down every one on the, by the sword of the other. Okay, so Babylon is going down. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and I will make you a signet ring. Oh, no, no, now, wait a minute. I thought the signet ring had been ripped off, never to be put on again. No son of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne, and this man would be childless. And yet here is a son who, upon whom the signet ring is going to be placed. What gives? How do, we, how do we reconcile this pattern? I mean, this, this Zerubbabel guy is really important to us. Okay? Now here's where I'm going to take you to two more genealogies. Two more genealogies. If you would, go to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. I want you to take the time to get there to both of these. Give you a, I'll give you a few minutes to find these because I think it's, it's worth looking at these. Okay? What we find in Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Joseph, the, not the biological father of Jesus, but the adoptive father of Jesus, the legal father of Jesus, uh, though not biologically. And what we're going to find in Luke chapter 3 is the genealogy of Luke, uh, excuse me, of, of, of Mary. Okay, and so you see these, and you, as you would expect, there's very little overlap of the names. 
because we're talking about two different lines. Now, both of them come from David. Okay, so, you know, they start with, you know, all, in, at least in Matthew, goes all the way back to Adam, okay? Uh, but it goes to, uh, from Adam to David, it's, everything's exactly the same. But then when you get to David, they split, okay? Uh, David has more than one son, of course. Solomon, the most famous of the sons. This is the royal line. And then there's another son. There's several other sons. But in, in this case, Luke's, uh, Luke's account uh, tells us that Mary's connection with David is through another son of David named Nathan. Okay, and so we look at this, and there's an immediate divergence when we get to David. And you would expect them all to come down here. Okay, here's Mary over here. Here's Joseph over here. But that's not what happens. Okay, it goes like this. They separate. They come together for two names, and then they separate back again. It's really strange. Okay. You'll see here that the connecting point is this fellow by the name of Zerubbabel. In Matthew 1.12, we see the names of Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. Okay, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel in Matthew 1.12. We find in Luke 3.27 the same two names, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. But notice with me, if you would, the father of Shealtiel in both of these verses. In Matthew 1, we find that the father of Shealtiel is whom? Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, some of your translations might say. Okay, here's this. Jeconiah, the one who is cut off, is the grandfather of Zerubbabel in Matthew. But if you go to Luke, we actually find that the father of Shealtiel is listed as a different name. The name listed here is the name Neri. This is the only place that this, this name occurs anywhere in the whole Bible. Neri is a descendant of David, but through a different son of David, Nathan. So how do we explain this discrepancy? It's long you know, been a puzzle uh, that interpreters have tried to figure out. Why is it that this takes place? There's a number of theories out there, but the leading theory, or probably our best explanation here, is this man Jeconiah, who was the last of the Israelite kings, adopted a very distant cousin by the name of Shealtiel, raised him as his own son. Remember, he's childless, but he raised the son of another man. Perhaps he had died. He raised the son of another man, gave birth to Zerubbabel, who then becomes legally in the line of David through Solomon, but biologically is the son of David through Nathan. Okay? Now, this man here, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, have multiple sons as well, and now the, the genealogies diverge again. Okay? And they come, they end up with Luke and Joseph, uh, with, with Mary and Joseph on either side. So let's summarize that. David is promised by God that he will top a royal family tree that will culminate in the great king of kings, Jesus Christ. But the most visible of his descendants in the royal line, the kings of Judah, comes to a dead end with Jeconiah, who would never have a child, who would never have a Jewish king from among his physical descendants. However, 
For all those centuries, God preserved a second line, and about 400 years later, by what would seem like a chance bit of altruism, Jeconiah adopts a long-lost cousin and adopts him as his own, and the preservation of the promise of David is resumed. There is a legal son who is in the royal line of David, who is going to culminate in Joseph, who legally is the father of Jesus, but not biologically. And yet we find that there was a circuitous route that God made in order for him uh, to do this. I, I, I think what we have here is God obviously acting in judgment and, and in you know, response to obedience and disobedience and all that. But I wonder at times whether Satan you know, has imagined that he's won. Yeah, when he read those words in Jeremiah, <laughs> no more sons of Jeconiah, he's childless. The royal line of David is done. And he probably goes, <laughs> I won. And then God has the last laugh. <laughs> I'll have him adopt a son, also from the line of David, who will give him the legal pet, pet pedigree to be the king of the Jews from the line of David, and yet get around this curse that is leveled against Jeconiah. And I, and I, and I wonder sometimes whether God didn't just have a great chuckle over the disappointment that Satan would have had in finding out that God's promises that he made were irrevocable. God makes good on his promises, and he does send the Messiah just as he had promised and makes it possible for the culmination of history in the person of the King of Kings in the line of David who will not only be our Savior but also our King. And God is faithful to his promise to save his people. But if you'll go back to Ezra, Ezra, I think there's another promise. Another promise here that is in view. Great theme of the Old Testament prophets, and particularly the prophets of the exile, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is this theme of restoration. Chapter after chapter, we find promises of God to Israel and Judah about a coming day when they, the, the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, would find political rest, military peace, agricultural abundance, material prosperity, and in general, great joy and satisfaction in restoration to the land. Beyond this, we find a series of promises given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah that greatly surpass anything that takes place even in the exile. We read in Jeremiah 31 of a new covenant that will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the descendants of Israel, in which great spiritual renaissance would occur. Regeneration would be widespread. The Jews would be restored to their land and live in safety and forever, perpetual safety forever. And we read of the construction of a city and a temple that will never be destroyed. We look in vain, though, at history for the fulfillment of these grand promises. 
Okay, they do come to the land, they build up a temple, they build up the city walls, but this is not a temple that will never be destroyed. It is destroyed, right? It's not there now, right? So this city is destroyed. They lived in relative safety in the land, but not perpetual safety. In fact, the land of Israel, if there has been any land in the whole world that has been a place of political and military turmoil over the years, it's been this place, this, this spot in the globe, this, this, this cro you know, the, the, the crossroads of, of the known world right there in Israel. It has always, always been a place of turmoil. There has never been a time of real safety in the land, much less one that is perpetual safety. They will live in safety here forever. So we recognize that there's going to be a restoration, and then there's going to be a grand restoration that is yet to come. In fact, if we read in Romans 11, we find very specifically that Israel will, in fact, someday receive this later promise. All Israel, Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, will be saved. A deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are now enemies on your account, Israel is. But, on, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the promises to the patriarchs. Because God's gifts and call and promises are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Because God has bound all men over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them. Oh, the dip depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So there's this promise that there will be a restoration, a grand restoration. And I think what we find here in the return from exile is an anticipation, a historical anticipation of the grand restoration that is yet to come. And when Ezra lists these 123 family heads, these clan leaders, perhaps we might call them, that we chose not to read this morning. He was not creating a meaningless list. He was with every one of these 123 people glorying in the faithfulness of God in keeping a promise to preserve Judah intact ethnically. In fact, as we look at the evening news each night and marvel that God's promises with respect to his people are unfailing, we marvel that this is true. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the gathering of the Jews today is some sort of signal that Jesus is about to return. I know there's a promise. There's, there's, there's this idea running around the internet these days that on April 23rd, you know, the, the rapture is going to occur. Don't listen to it. It's tomfoolery. It's ridiculous, okay? There is no promise of a day. In fact, we don't know the day or the hour. I'm, I'm, I, I would say it can happen almost any time. I, I, I can't imagine that uh, God would allow it to happen on that day. But, uh, but I think pretty much any other day, <laughs> the, the rapture could occur. There doesn't have to be anything that takes place in order for the rapture of the saints to occur. Nonetheless, there is 
as you watch the history of Israel, you know, a sense that God is keeping these people intact. Now, even after World War II, they're kept intact. They've kept all sorts of records over the years. And the Jewish people retained their ethnic identity even though for century after century after century they've been dispersed among the nations, they still retain their ethnic identity. This is, this is, this is remarkable. It's providential. God is making this happen. And just as there were 42,360 pure Jews that survived the Babylonian exile, so also there will be a body of Jews that will survive to the end of this age. Why? Because God has made promises to these people that remain unfulfilled, and so therefore they must remain intact because the gifts, the calling, the promises of God are irrevocable. God's promises are unfailing. But let's look specifically at verses 59 to 63 in Ezra chapter 2, for the specific reason why I believe this was critical to Ezra's inclusion of all these names. First, we find here in verse 59 and also in verse 62, a few of the people who were part of this migration who couldn't prove who they were. Okay? They, they knew themselves to be Jews. They'd been told they were Jews. Uh, perhaps they, they, you know, their parents or grandparents had told them, you're, you're part of this group, but somehow in the melee of being you know, transported, uprooted from their land and brought to the land of Babylon, they had lost their papers. You know, they lost their paperwork. They couldn't prove who they were. And perhaps we'd say, what's the big deal? You know, they want to be part of this migration, let them. It doesn't really matter whether they have an Israeli passport or not. Okay, let him be part of it. What's, what's the big deal? But it was a big deal. So big a deal that they actually dusted off the Urim and the Thummim in order to find out whether these people were truly Jews, were truly Israelites. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of questions, a lot of intrigue involved with this Urim and Thummim, but it apparently was a way whereby God's people could inquire of God specific questions that could not be answered from the Bible of their day. They simply didn't have the information here to tell. Wait, am, am, I a, am, I a, am I a descendant of, of Judah? Well, you know, scrabble around in the Bible. You can't find it. It's not there. So how are we going to find out whether these people are the genuine article? Well, there was this Urim and Thummim that was maintained here by the high priest, and it could be consulted in very important matters to find out God's mind on something that could not be known any other way. And they actually dusted it off to find out the answer to this question. Is this guy really a Jew? Is this guy really an Israelite? And they went through each one of these names to discover for sure whether these people are part of this Jewish community. It was that important to them. Thousands of people visit the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. every year. Some go to ponder the magnitude of loss of life, and they see this long row of names, 57,000 of them. And, you know, they, they ponder the great loss of life. Others go searching for one name, or maybe two. Someone they're connected with, a friend, a brother, a husband dad. Few have ever read the whole list all the way through. 
perhaps no one, I don't know. That's not the point of the list. Visitors are instead looking for one of two things. They want to either be overwhelmed by the magnitude of the whole list or made poignantly aware of the presence of one name with whom they are connected. Same thing is true here in Ezra. Here's a list, not really designed to be read through as a list, but a list at which every Israel could look. Broadly to say, God is faithful in preserving 42,000 of us intact. And then, they'd actually look for that one name. And that's the one person that's connected to me. That's my great-granddaddy. This is, this is dad. This is granddad. This is great-granddad. And I'm one of these people. And so they'd look for the one name. Okay? It's exactly what we do with these lists these memorials that are there. We don't read them through. We look at the magnitude of the whole list that God is definitely faithful in a broad sense, and he's also narrowly faithful to me, specifically. And that's what, what we have here in Ezra, a list that people could connect with and know that God's promises are faithful. And so we come to the end of our time this morning, again, with little by way of direct application from the text. We're not decoding the names to find out some little hint about the disposition of the people because of the, you know, the, the Hebrew meaning of the words. It's not there. We're not looking for some sort of moral quality that any one of these persons might have to emulate their character or behavior. They're just ordinary names. There are probably some scoundrels among them, probably some very good people among them. But as we ponder the reasons why this list of names is here, we learn a lot about our God. Not only is this, he this great and terrible transcendent and sovereign God who controls the universe, he's also the personally faithful God who keeps his promises both to redeem and to restore his people. God is by nature a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And this second chapter of Ezra, with all of its appearance of being a rather mundane and ho-hum list, there is something here that confirms that on this important occasion in 538 B.C., God was faithful to his promises. You know, we could pull out another list, right? Someone was talking about it this morning in Sunday school, and it sort of caught my ear, talking about the membership list of our church. Someone was praying for people on the membership list. You know, there's a list of names that we can look, and you, what are you usually looking for? Two things. If you pull out that list, I'm, I'm looking for my name, <laughs> and, and I'm looking to see how many names are on the list, Right? That's, that's often the question we're asking when we pull this list out. Why do we look at that list? Because it says that I'm part of God's work. I'm part of God's church in Royal Oak, Michigan, and I tend to persevere in that role because God is faithful. And I'm on that list. I'm on that list of people that God is faithfully doing His work right here in Royal Oak, Michigan. And it should give us some confidence. It's not an inspired list by any means. You know. But it's a list of names 
with whom God is working and for whom God is working and through whom God is working to fulfill his promises that he will build his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We serve a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He's sovereign in the universe, and he's faithful to each one of us. This is the God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful this morning as we are re-engaging, rebuilding after a little bit of a setback here in the church. Lord, help us to be aware of the big picture, that you are doing a great work of which we are a little part. And Lord, help us to look at these names in Ezra, even as we look at another list of names or membership list of those who are working together in obedience to your expectation, your command to build a church. And Lord, help us to be cognizant of, believing of the promise that you have made, that you will build your church. And Lord, help us to be comforted, encouraged, and caused to be zealous for your name because of the fact that you are faithful to the promises that you have made to us. Lord, help us in return to be faithful as well. In your name we pray. Amen.